Wednesday, February 1st, 2012 was like any other day for barista Samantha Koenig. She worked hard at a small coffee kiosk named Common Grounds, located in a parking lot in Anchorage, Alaska. Surveillance footage of the kiosk showed Samantha hurriedly making coffee for numerous people that day. At one point, the video footage showed a tall and thin man, his face obscured by a ski mask, approach the kiosk. Inside, Samantha could be seen filling the man's order until, obviously surprised, she jumped back and put her hands up. Israel Keys, now with a gun pointing at Samantha through the window, ordered her to turn off the lights, take money out of the register, and to kneel down on the ground. Keys then climbed through the window to the kiosk and forcibly abducted Samantha, first tying her hands with zip ties. He buried his gun into her side and put his arm around her shoulder, then directed her toward his truck which was parked a few yards away in the parking lot. On the way toward his truck, Samantha was able to briefly break free from Keyes, making a last-ditch attempt to escape her abductor. But Keyes quickly tackled her, the scene obscured from the nearby road by a large snowbank. Keyes then threatened to shoot Samantha if she tried to escape, and warned her that no one would hear the gunshots. Not wanting to enrage Keyes further, Samantha complied with his orders, and walked with him to his white pickup truck where Keyes, who had planned the abduction for some time, had removed his license plates and had moved his tools out in order to secure Samantha once she was inside. After this, Keyes took his time, driving Samantha around while assuring her that he was interested in demanding a ransom for her and that if she cooperated, he would return her to her family safely. Samantha told Keyes that her family would not be able to pay a ransom for her return, at which point Keyes stated that the ransom money would most likely be raised through the help of the public after she was reported missing. While driving around, Keyes made the realization that during the abduction, Samantha had dropped her cell phone on the ground and left it in the coffee kiosk. Keyes, needing the phone to enact his plan to demand a ransom for Samantha, then returned to the coffee shop. He left Samantha bound in his truck while he broke into the kiosk a second time, finding her phone on the floor. Once back into his truck, he drove Samantha to another part of town where he used her phone to send two text messages. The first was to Samantha's boyfriend where the message made Samantha sound as if she were angry with her boyfriend for doing something she had found out about. The second message was sent to the owner of the Common Grounds coffee kiosk, where he made Samantha sound as if, having a bad day, had decided to close up shop and leave town for a few days to stay with friends. Knowing the messages could be tracked, Keys then removed the battery from Samantha's phone. In order to procure money, Keys demanded Samantha hand over her debit card, Samantha informed Keyes that she shared an account with her boyfriend and that his card was located in a truck that both of them shared. Keyes then drove Samantha to his house, where he locked her in a shed, bound, and turned on some loud music to muffle her screams should she decide to call for help. In an amazingly brazen move, Keyes then drove to Samantha's house and broke into her boyfriend's truck to retrieve the ATM card Samantha and her boyfriend shared. Samantha's boyfriend, spotting Keyes rifling around in his vehicle, yelled at Keyes, then went back into the house to get help. Keyes then fled back to his own truck and left before Samantha's boyfriend could catch him. Keyes then drove to a local ATM to test the card with a pin provided by Samantha. Keyes returned home, where he sexually assaulted Samantha in his shed and made the fateful decision to murder her by strangling her to death. Keyes then left Samantha's body in his shed while he went to pack for a planned family vacation, including a cruise that was leaving from New Orleans. He packed and left early the next day, February 2nd. 
Keyes returned to his house on February 17th, where he prepared a ransom note that demanded money be placed into Samantha's account where he could access it with the card he stole from her and her boyfriend's truck two weeks earlier. In one of the most macabre details of the case, Key spent a number of hours manipulating Samantha's deceased body to make her appear as if she were still alive, pinning her eyes open and applying makeup to areas where her skin had bruised. Keyes also admitted to sexually desecrating Samantha's body. Once he was satisfied that she looked alive, Keyes took a photo of her with an Anchorage newspaper that was dated four days prior. He copied the photo, then typed a demand for $30,000 on the back of it. Once the ransom note was completed, Keyes drove to a local park and placed it under a flyer attached to a bulletin board. He texted Samantha's boyfriend using her cell phone letting him know where to find the note. At this point, Samantha's disappearance was public, and her boyfriend promptly turned the information over to the police, who then retrieved the note. Keyes, knowing that he would have to dispose of Samantha's body, ultimately decided to dismember her, then transport her to a local fishing spot he liked to visit, where he cut a hole in the ice and disposed of Samantha piece by piece. Believing that Samantha was still alive from the photo Keyes had staged, Samantha's father, James, continued to put money into Samantha's account where it could be accessed by Keyes as demanded in the ransom note. James was able to do this through money that had been donated from the community, just as Keyes had suspected it would be. James also agreed to place the money in the account as a way for local police to monitor the movements of Keyes, closely watching cash withdrawals. Money was taken out in Alaska, then Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. While monitoring Samantha's debit account, Anchorage police began coordinating with law enforcement in the states where Keyes was seen to make withdrawals. All that could be determined at the time that Keyes made the cash withdrawals was that he was driving what appeared to be a white Ford Focus car which, unfortunately for investigators, was the single most common make and color rental car issued by car rental companies at the time. Keyes traveled successfully through Arizona and New Mexico before finally being stopped by a Texas Highway Patrol officer named Brian Henry who, with the help of a Texas Ranger named Steve Rayburn, was able to obtain enough information from Keyes to merit a search of the vehicle. Inside, Henry and Rayburn located Samantha's cell phone. They also located Samantha's debit card in Keyes' wallet and the mask seen on the surveillance videos. Keyes was immediately arrested. It had been one month since the initial disappearance of Samantha. True to his obstructionist form, however, Keyes initially refused to talk to investigators, knowing that the items were only circumstantial in nature and that Samantha's body had not been found. It's unclear why he decided to talk to police, but approximately two weeks after his arrest, Keyes agreed to an interview with the FBI and a federal prosecutor. Keyes, believing law enforcement knew more about the case than they actually did, provided a detailed account of kidnapping Samantha, numerous close calls where others witnessed the two of them together, and the ultimate dismembering and disposal of her body in an Alaska lake. He initially did not provide details of the murder, but explained that he had no relationship with Samantha. She was chosen entirely at random simply because the Common Grounds coffee kiosk was open later than others and because the view of it was obstructed by a snowbank from the road. In the course of his confession, Keyes admitted to killing at least seven other people, although authorities believe that there were actually more victims. Two other murders he admitted to committing were those of Bill and Lorraine Courier, an Essex-Vermont couple who were asleep in their beds one evening in June 2011 when Keyes entered their home and kidnapped them before brutally murdering them both in an abandoned house. 
he informed law enforcement that he decided to kill the couple on a whim after he was in the Northeast to visit his brother. He had actually traveled to Burlington, Vermont, five years earlier to hide one of his so-called kill kits, a bucket containing various items for keys to later retrieve for just such an occasion. During his interrogation, Keyes revealed a number of facts about himself that seemed to set him aside from what was typically known about serial killers. For instance, he never killed in the same place twice, and he had no preferences in his victims. Background information about Keyes seemed to reveal little about his personality or motives to kill. His parents were initially Latter-day Saints, but left to join a fundamentalist sect of Christianity who subscribed to white supremacist ideology. He also lived with his parents and nine siblings in a one-room cabin in Colville, Washington, and eventually joined the army in 1998. Knowing he had little chance of ever seeing the free world again, Keyes committed suicide in jail while awaiting trial by cutting his wrists and hanging himself on December 2, 2012. He left behind a suicide note and a painting of a pentagram and 11 skulls, each believed to represent all of his murder victims. Keyes reported choosing Samantha Koenig, Bill and Lorraine Courier, and all his victims completely at random. He claimed he never met any of his victims before murdering them. This episode is about serial killer Israel Keyes. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morellos. David, we're finally back with season four. Yeah. Yay. We took some very needed time off to decompress, get a vacation in, do some bonus interviews, and now we're back and raring to go. We also spent some time setting up our merchandise shop. Very exciting, right, David? Yes, it is. And now we're on Patreon with some cool gifts and extras, like being able to vote on the topic for our season four finale and exclusive access to a Q&A session after the final episode of season four. All right, enough of all that. Let's get on to what we're really here to talk about, Israel Keys. So this is a case we've gotten so many requests for. Probably the single most requested, I would say. I totally agree. We've had at least four or five different requests for Israel Keys, so we really felt like it was a topic that we had to get to. And Israel Keys seems to be one of those serial killers who really captivated people. And that's always weird to say. You know, I've always have this kind of push and pull when we're picking episode topics because I think it's interesting to talk about the offenders. And I think it can be very important to study people who do really horrible things, 
you know, so we know what to look for, how to prevent it, how to provide rehabilitation, etc. But at the same time, we don't want to glorify them. And the way I think about this kind of fascination with people that commit these heinous acts is not that we revere them, not at all, but that we want to understand, you know, how can things go so incredibly wrong that it results in someone becoming a serial killer? Is this something that could happen to us or to people that we care about? Could we become victims ourselves? What do we need to do to avoid that? You know, so at least for me, those are the things I think about when I'm conceptualizing these cases. And I guess that's just what I wanted to start out saying, that although we're analyzing the criminal acts, we also don't want to forget about the victims. And in this case, the only known victims that we know particularly by name are Samantha Koenig, Bill Courier, and Lorraine Courier. So what is there to say about this case? You know, David, I really struggled with this one. It it was kind of a tricky one for me for some reason. Me too, actually. I think this case is so chilling because a lot of people would say that Keyes did not follow the quote-unquote rules that serial killers are supposed to follow. We've talked in prior episodes about the FBI's symposium on serial killers. And if you'll remember, they discussed so many aspects of serial killing, and one of the areas they covered, although they didn't focus on, were the motivations of serial killers. I would argue that for most people, even law enforcement, figuring out the motive of an offender appears to be a very crucial aspect of an investigation. It's one of the things prosecutors explain to juries, and it helps people understand the why of a crime. However, just as an aside, prosecutors do not actually have to prove motive in order to convict offenders. Anyway, we often see in crime shows suspects that are no longer pursued because they don't have a motive for the crime. And I think in the vast majority of crimes, the motive is important there needs to be some motivation that connects the criminal to the crime. However, it's certainly not always the case. So I think of celebrities who've been caught shoplifting, for example. They are certainly not motivated to steal for financial reasons, but there may be some other psychological reason for their behavior. So while in some instances the motive may be very clear, in other cases it may be much more difficult to establish. And this is one of the points made at the FBI symposium. They actually cautioned law enforcement against relying too heavily on motivation in investigating serial murder cases. One of the reasons is that a killer's motive can change, not just across murders, but even within the same murder. Perhaps the killer sets out with one motive in mind, but partway through the act discovers another motive. Additionally, they may have multiple motives, not just one. For example, in Key's case, he was motivated by having power over the victims, the thrill of the kill, money, and sex. It can be difficult and even impossible to know which motivation is prominent, and that can also change depending on how the situation unfolds. One of the things I've seen and read about Key's is that at times he considered not killing someone if he was able to steal money or other valuable items from their homes. But if there was nothing of value to steal, he might decide to kill instead. And sometimes he would steal and kill. So the FBI really cautioned law enforcement in relying too heavily on motive during these investigations, 
going as far as to say that even if a solid motive can be established, it may not be helpful at all in identifying the suspect. So I think that this is one of the aspects of the Keys case that is so interesting to people. It's very hard to nail down exactly why he did what he did. As human beings, we crave the answer to that why question. I don't know about you, David, but um, when I was doing therapy, that was always something that clients wanted to know. Why did I do X behavior? Right. And sometimes, you know, that can be a very interesting pursuit, but I don't always think that it's necessary to determine in order to help people change their behaviors. Right, exactly. It's not necessary to know the whys when your first goal is to try to change a behavior, a particular behavior. Right. So, you know, as human beings, I think we crave the answer to that why question. And now that Keyes is dead, there's no chance that we will ever get that information directly from him. But you know, David, I think that even if he were still alive, I don't know if he could or would answer that question. I say I don't know that he could because we all engage in behaviors all the time that we have very little insight into. I don't know for me, for example, why I love pizza so much, but I absolutely love pizza. Oh, probably because everybody loves pizza. (laughs) Right. You know, and if you asked me why, I could probably give you an intellectualized explanation for why. You know, I like the texture, I find the flavor combination pleasing, I have many positive memories eating pizza, etc. But does that really completely explain why I like it? I don't know. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, the reason I say that I don't know that Keys would share his motivation, even if he did know it, is because many who interacted with Keys believed that he was a psychopath. And if you remember, we talked quite a bit about psychopaths early in the podcast. Right. And we talked about this idea that psychopaths like to control the narrative. So they um, tend to be very narcissistic and they like attention, but they always want it on their own terms. And I think Keyes knew his case was different. And it seemed that he really strove to, quote unquote, break all the rules. So even if there was some consistent motive, I don't know that he would have ever provided that to authorities. We'll never know now, but I certainly think he displayed similar behavior in his interrogations. You know, withholding information until it suited him, evading questions at particular times. But, you know, regardless, one of the most important take-home messages to me from the FBI symposium was that serial murderers kill because they want to. With the exception of the extreme few who have a serious mental illness, the killing is a conscious choice. It's not a force they can't resist, it's not a separate personality that they can't control, and it's certainly not some evil spirit inhabiting their bodies. And I believe that this was the case with Keyes as well. He killed because he wanted and chose to. The other piece of this case that I think is extremely frightening is that Keyes did not have a particular victim type. When I think about other serial killers like David Berkowitz, Ted Bundy, or Edmund Kemper, they all had preferred victim types. With Berkowitz, it was couples who were like parked on the side of the road, and it was women with long brown hair. With Bundy and Kemper, it was college-aged women. And so couples avoided being parked in their cars, or women cut and dyed their hair, or they began going out in groups, or whatever they could do to do what is called target hardening, 
or in other words, making themselves less attractive as a potential victim. But with keys, we don't have that consistent victim profile. The FBI symposium discussed victim choice as it applies to serial murders as well. They identified three factors serial killers take into account when choosing victims. Availability, vulnerability, and desirability. So while desirability, which can include things like physical characteristics, age, ethnicity, or gender, is one factor, it's not the whole picture. For some killers, this may be the most important factor, but for others it may not. In general, serial killers want to get away with their crimes so they can continue to commit them. That means they have to balance their idealized victim with their ability to evade detection. As a result, they may have to settle for a victim who is not as desirable, but is more vulnerable or more available. And I think we can see this in the Keys case as well. He appeared to be very random in his victim choice. With Samantha Koenig, she was a young woman working alone at night. With Bill and the Rain Courier, they were asleep in their beds. And it's believed that Keys also murdered women who were homeless or involved in sex trafficking women other people would be less likely to notice were missing. Keyes killed far from his home, that is, until Samantha Koenig, and we know now that this played a role in his being caught. So for Keyes, it may have been that he didn't focus as much on the desirability of his victims as he did the other two factors. And while that's unnerving, it still fits with what we know about serial killers. It certainly has made it more difficult to connect his crimes, and most of his believed victims are still unidentified. We just hope that law enforcement is able to eventually determine the link to potentially give those victims' families some sense of closure, or at least knowledge about what happened to their loved ones. You know, David, I really think that Keyes thought he could outsmart the police. Yeah. And that's ultimately what did him in, in my opinion. You know, our, our human brains become desensitized to things like adrenaline over time. And I think that's what happened in this case. Because Keyes had gotten away with murder before, he became more confident that he would continue to elude law enforcement. And I think that's what led him to stop being as concerned about not leaving clues. And thank goodness he did, right? I right. mean, thank goodness for good police work and for the bit of luck that occurred in this case. Um, otherwise, you know, they may ne never have caught him. So I, I completely agree with you. You know, first off, I wanted to get back to the comment that you made. You know that I appreciate all your input in all the cases that we discuss. And serial killers is one of those areas where your knowledge of the intersection between psychology and the legal system really impresses me. The idea that prosecutors really don't need to spend much time with the why of the crime, that is the motive, kind of blew me away just now. When what you know about the legal system is mostly from what you've seen on TV, as in my case, you know. As in most people's case, really. It, I mean, exactly. Right? Yeah, sure. Um, it's difficult to wrap your head around the idea that motive is not actually something that's required or even maybe even really that important when trying a murder case. Uncovering a strong motive can be a win for any prosecution, I would imagine, but prosecutors must be ready to move forward with evidence, regardless of what they know about the potential killer's reasons for committing the act. And it also makes sense to me that juries would like explanations about motive because we all usually have a deep desire to understand the whys of a crime. 
But as this is an imperfect world, there will be many times when we'll probably never understand the motives behind why people commit crimes like this. Yeah, I would agree. This takes me back to our episode on the Watts family murders. You know, you and I speculated on why Watts may have committed this horrific crime, but in the end, that's really all it is. Semi-informed speculation from what we think we know about the case and what we know about the psychology of the perpetrator. So getting into someone's head like this, while it can be helpful to prosecutors, certainly isn't required for a successful prosecution. Obviously, sitting in the gray area, especially with experiences like this, can be especially difficult. So the fact that this has been the single most requested episode topic from our listeners also makes a great deal of sense to me. What in the world is going on in the mind of this guy? Well, guys, I will certainly speculate on what I think is going on here, but just a small forewarning, this one's going to get a little rough. I say that only because I find myself being triggered by this guy and this case, and I'll go into why here in a few. So it's funny because, you know, that's something that you and I kind of talked about when we were reading the books on, on Israel Keys, when we were watching the interviews with him. We both kind of found ourselves getting irritated. Oh, absolutely. It's a testament to the emotional and sort of psychological restraint that professionals like those of police officers and the FBI who interrogated Keys really have to be fluent in. Right. And you were saying that, you know, we don't use curse words on our podcast. That's right. a very conscious choice. Oh, but I wanted to. I know. And you were saying that it is really hard for you not to in this particular episode. Right. Right. No, it definitely was because there's something very smug and very arrogant about Keys that just drives me crazy. So to me, Keys represents the worst of the power and control killers like you were talking about. The very fact that Keyes was so worried during the interrogation about how his answers to questions would later be interpreted by the public really gives him away in this regard. Even after he was caught, the way he continued to toy with the police, knowing that he was probably never going to see daylight again as he sat in prison, seemed like a very common and typical power play. Keyes attempted to control every aspect of the narrative about his crimes. I kept finding myself wanting to yell at the TV, what difference does it make? You're caught. Why are you concerned about true crime documentaries after the fact? So obviously, I was being triggered by Keyes' persona. Okay, whatever. My trigger is my responsibility. But I know from experience that those that have this effect on me are usually due to some kind of personality disorder issue. From the research that we did, I found Keyes to be highly narcissistic and highly antisocial. I say narcissistic because of his continual need to control how everyone perceived him, even after he was caught, and antisocial because of the way he got a perverse pleasure with toying with the police. Well, and also antisocial, he um, referred to his victims like it was very um, non-personal, almost right. like they were objects, right? And that's a very kind of antisocial way of seeing the world. Absolutely. So to me, this represents a deeply insecure and ineffectual personality type. There didn't seem to be much available about Keyes' childhood, but my guess is, is that he was always socially awkward in the sense that he never felt like he fit in, even though others may or may not have thought that about him. At some point, I would argue, he experienced something that made him feel powerless, and he was going to spend the rest of his life attempting to fill the psychological hole that that powerlessness left in him. As we all know, however, this idea is a farce that only makes sense to people who are unconscious about their true feelings and motivations. 
In other words, this became a shadow side of Keyes that, left unchecked for so many years, eventually enveloped him. As Jung said, what you resist will persist. And I believe that to be the case here. Keyes fell victim to a shadow side that he refused to acknowledge and successfully integrate and manage. So it crept up behind him and took over. Most of us will never have shadow dimensions that are this extreme, and others will be much, much more skillful at integrating these dark sides of ourselves so that they do not harm ourselves or others, but not keys. As we've spoke about before, personality disorders are under the heading of mental health, but are also separate from them. Right, Dr. McCona? Yeah, so, you know, in the work that I do, you know, personality disorder diagnoses are, of course, included in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. But when we're looking at things like competency to stand trial or criminal responsibility or even civil commitment, generally personality disorders are not going to fit that definition of being a mental illness. Right. Okay, so it's generally accepted that personality disorders are poor coping strategies that are adopted by some as a way to deal with different psychosocial influences throughout their lives. Yeah, I would agree with that. They're just very uh, maladaptive and very rigid. Right, okay. So to be antisocial, which by the way has nothing to do with being shy, introverted, or socially awkward, Antisocial is an orientation that can be the result of being exposed to a number of things during childhood. For instance, a child exposed to extreme poverty, criminality, and influences that are antisocial in nature themselves, such as family who are involved in criminal behavior, will most likely shape that child's particular orientation toward the world. They will probably see the world as a dog-eat-dog, dangerous place where power is what counts, getting it, maintaining it, and having it over weaker people. In this sense, we can see why a person may adopt this kind of attitude towards others. In the treatment that I do with prisoners, we call this thinking error power orientation. That is, the desire to constantly label people as weak or strong and to feel entitled to dominate and use those who they perceive to be weaker than them for their own gain. Someone who we would call a bully is an example of this. But here's the rub. What do we know about the psychology of bullies? Well, generally speaking, that there is a significantly damaged child somewhere deep in there that had power stolen from them at some point, in many cases, from some kind of abuse. The outer individual continues to grow up, but there is always a scared child buried deep inside that the outer persona feels it needs to protect. Of course, after this comes the compensation, that is, the going overboard part of the bully mentality whereby they have to go overboard when proving how tough they are in an attempt to protect this very vulnerable part of themselves. And, you guessed it, they do this in a very unskillful way by denying this part of themselves and projecting outward onto people they perceive as being more vulnerable and weaker than they are. To me, Keyes is the worst kind of bully. I look at this guy and I see a very ineffectual and scared man. I see his narcissism and antisocial tendencies as being a very obvious overcompensation for a scared little boy inside that he's trying desperately to deny. I can work with men like this if at least it's acknowledged by them. But Keyes is so heavily in denial about his inner pain that I don't feel that working with this guy would have done any good. He probably would have just tried to play games in a bid to one-up any therapist. Again, just another top dog, bottom dog kind of game that men, especially antisocial ones, like to play. 
So there was probably no way that Keyes would have ever acknowledged his pain, much less confronted it. It was so much easier to project it outwardly and convince himself that he was, in fact, the one who was always in control, the one who would always outsmart everyone else. That is, until he didn't. So I think what makes Keyes so interesting to people is that he, as you mentioned, Jessica, broke many of the rules about what we generally know about serial killing. This, in the eyes of some, made him seem like an incredibly intelligent person. And maybe he was intelligent. Then again. Okay, quick story for everyone out there. Years and years and years ago, when I was a fresh-faced college student... Not I did... that many years, my goodness. <laughs> well, it was, it was a while ago. It was a while ago. So when I was a, a fresh-faced college student, I did not study psychology. I was a writing and lit student at Naropa Institute, which is now Naropa University. But my best friend at the time was a psychology student uh, studying just up the hill at the University of Colorado in Boulder. So anyway, he was in a film class, and on Monday evenings, I would meet him and sit in on the film screenings that he had to do for the class. It was a fun time. It gave me an appreciation for film, especially film classics that I probably would never have watched otherwise. So anyway, one evening, one of the films we watched got us into a discussion about the psychology of serial killing. I think that evening we talked all night about it and at dinner, then on the way home from his class and everything. Well, one of the things he mentioned, if someone, for instance, wanted to be a prolific serial killer, was that they would probably have to pick random places that were far away from where the killer lived and never the same place twice. Wait a second. So were you friends with Keys? <laughs> just kidding. All, yeah, no. This was, this was just obviously in the abstract. Right. right. But it was something that he had thought about, you know, in terms of, what if you wanted, let's just say hypothetically, if you wanted to be a prolific serial killer. Right. If the serial killer really wanted to mix things up, they would also need to change up how they killed as well. This would make linking the crimes especially difficult for police, as there would seem to be no connection between them. If they wanted to be noted as a serial killer, they would have to connect their crimes in some way, either by the killing style or the selection of the victim, like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, etc., but the randomness of the location would help ensure the killer wouldn't be caught easily. So there you have it. Two college students, barely old enough to drink, discussing this one night after film class. Not exactly genius level stuff. And yet, here we have Keyes capturing the imagination of so many people because he seemed to break some of the basic rules of serial killing by doing a few things that were obvious to a couple of nitwit college kids in the late 90s. So no, Keyes does not impress me with his stellar intelligence. He strikes me again as someone overcompensating in order to try to look like someone who is supremely intelligent, but it was probably, arguably, dreadfully insecure. I'll go on. In a number of cases, Keyes makes some choices that seem more likely like simple dumb luck than they do the mind of a highly intelligent serial killer. Things like renting a very common type of car, which was probably all he could afford. The same is probably true with the truck he drove personally, and let's not forget, again, the police caught him because of an incredibly stupid act that he committed in his own hometown. For someone who was supposedly so incredibly intelligent, he commits the single greatest mistake that gets him caught. After this, it was just a matter of police in Alaska coordinating with police in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas to tighten the net around him, which they did with systematic and intelligent police work. After Keyes was caught, a few seasoned detectives, in spite of a very naive federal prosecutor who almost sank the ship, but we won't get into that too much here, were able to play Keyes directly into their hands and get him to admit almost everything they needed to lock him away for the rest of his life. 
It wasn't long after that they found the body of Samantha Koenig. Okay, so at this point, Keyes does the most obvious thing. After realizing he wouldn't be able to talk his way out of his crimes, he kills himself. He knew he had been outplayed, which must have been the mother of all narcissistic injuries for him. But whatever. You know, I know this is probably an inappropriate time to bring up the comedy bit that Louis C.K. did once. The one about suicide. You remember that one, Jessica? I do, yeah. Okay. This is one where Louis C.K. jokes around about being able to use suicide to get out of having to do something you really don't want to do. To his credit, Louis C.K. acknowledged in the bit that you could only do this once, obviously. But there you go. Even though Louis C.K. was making fun of the idea, I think that's exactly what's going on in the mind of Keyes. Guess what, Keyes? You're going to prison for the rest of your life. His response, no, I'm not. I'll just kill myself. And he did, in his final bid to prove that he was still the one in control, and he was still the one who had the ultimate power over himself and everyone around him. For lack of a better way of putting it, this really grinds my gears. Antisocial and narcissistic up to the very end. And you know, and it really robbed the um, families of the known victims of being able to get that justice. Right. Uh, I agree. Yeah. And, and, and it always does anytime this happens. And it happens, you know, we you, you do hear stories about it happening. Sure. That, that would be the case with uh, Jeffrey Epstein as well. Right. So I will say this, however, given the kind of deeply ineffectual person I believe Keyes was in his life, I don't think he would have done very well in prison. All joking aside, and I thought about this a while and how I was going to say this, but Keyes probably would have spent the rest of his life in protective custody. That would be my guess. If he were in a real high security prison, I truly feel that bigger and stronger inmates or an inmate would have either owned Keyes, if you know what I mean, or killed him. And I think Keyes knew this. For all his fascination with power and dominance over others, Keyes was just a scared man. It truly is tragic, obviously first and foremost for the people he victimized and their families. But there's a very small part of me that sees and identifies the wounded little boy inside that Keyes felt he needed to avenge by dominating others. This may be how he was able to compartmentalize enough to actually try to be a good father to his own daughter. But in the end, no amount of good fathering would outweigh Keyes' horrific acts, acts that would ensure Keyes would only be able to father his daughter from inside of a prison. So there you go. Thanks to everyone who suggested this case. I hope I didn't offend anyone and I was able to explain my own triggers adequately. This guy brought up some very visceral feelings in me, so sorry if it seemed a bit strong. But I really, really did not like this guy. Well, and I don't think that he's one that many could really like, you know. But I was thinking about what you were saying with regard to, like, the fact that Keyes has a daughter. And, you know, we talked about the victims, you know, the murder victims, their families. But also Keyes' own family members I see as victims in this case as well. Right. Because his behavior affected them um, tremendously. And I'm sure that every time that they hear or see something on him, it brings up a lot of pain for them as well. And I think that that those individuals are kind of sometimes the forgotten victims um, in cases like this. But I I just want to acknowledge that as well, that it wasn't any of their faults, what he chose to do. um, But they were certainly, they've had to bear the consequences of his behavior. Yeah. Yes, that's very true. So we're going to wrap this one up, um, but I did just want to take a moment. So one of the books that we read in preparation for this case 
um, was called American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century, written by Maureen Callahan. And if you're interested in the Keys case, I highly recommend it. It was very, very interesting. She did a lot of research on it. And we will have a link to that book as well as some other resources on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And you can send us a message from there with episode ideas, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at psychologyafterdark. And as we discussed in our bonus episode with Jen Iacino taylor from Little Man's Legacy, David, you and I will be at the charity spin class at Cycle Bar at Southwest Plaza in Littleton, Colorado. So all of our Denver area fans, we would love to meet you all in person and have you join us for a great workout for a great cause. That's taking place on Saturday, July 31st, and you can find additional information about that on the events page of our website as well. And we are really looking forward to being back with season four, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.